0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Michael Caris, and today on Raise the Line, we're going to focus on trends that we at Osmosis have had intense interest in for years, and we always love learning more about. Direct to consumer healthcare and how technology can empower consumers to be active participants in achieving and maintaining their own good health. To help us understand more about all this, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Taylor Sittler, who in a relatively short period of time has made a big impact in these areas by starting companies in genetics and women's health to personalize medicine, prevent disease, and diagnose infection. He's currently the head of research and development at Levels, which is a health tech company helping people discover how diet and lifestyle choices impact their metabolic functioning. He also has a special interest in the science of resilience, both from an emotional and physical perspective. So lots of interesting things to talk to you about today, Dr. Sittler, and thanks for
0: coming. I'm really happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me. So
1: our audience is mostly med students and health profession students and early career professionals. So we always like to start by asking our guests about their own career pathway. Sure. So what first got you interested in medicine and and then you ended up specializing in pathology?
0: Yeah, gosh, it was a bit of a long road. I had thought about going into medicine in college and then decided not to and went into software development instead. Ultimately, curved back around when I was about 25, started working at uh, Dana-Farber in Boston, and then decided that you know I thought that this was really the way that I could make a difference. And I feel like my career has been trying to marry medicine and technology pretty much ever since then. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've as I think many folks do, I had a bit of a winding road, but to me, participating in healthcare and being able to make a difference for people was a big part of what I wanted my career to be about. And so, yeah, it's that's kind of how I got into uh, medicine and went to UMass Medical School, um, did a uh, research fellowship in, um, I was working at MIT and then at UC San Diego in uh, in systems biology. And then from there got to was, I was actually thinking about going into emergency medicine. So I I had a pretty broad range of things that I was considering. I was trying, again, it was just figuring out how to marry those research interests and the technical stuff that I was doing with medicine. And ultimately I settled on pathology as the best way to bring those two things together. So when did you first develop an interest in the entrepreneurial side of things? I, I think it had kind of always been there. My my dad was a bit of an entrepreneur, although didn't work out very well for him. And, you know, I think my, my mom was always wary of me becoming an entrepreneur. So I think the fact that I was... In medicine was like I, I always use that as a defense. I was like, look, mom, I'm gonna be a doctor. Like I <laughs> you, can, you can relax. <laughs> you can relax. <laughs> <laughs> but but I had always wanted to start a company. I think I had tried a couple of times and I had been part of a startup between medical school and residency. I'd helped spin a company out of Bob Langer's lab at MIT with a couple of friends that actually have become lifelong friends since then. So I sort of had a couple of run-ins with the entrepreneurial community. And once I got to San Francisco, which is where I did my pathology residency, I feel like then it was full bore, right? I was exposed to entrepreneurship everywhere outside of the hospital. And in in a way, I think it was just a matter of time before I found the right folks to work with. So
1: your first company, I believe that you co-founded was Colored Genomics. Tell us about that how it came about and what were you trying to address
0: yeah so color really was it was when it was founded at a time that's you know it was about 10 years ago now and genetics was really just coming online in a big way there was a, a really famous graph back in the day of the cost of sequencing dropping faster than moore's law this was a graph that was updated monthly by the nhgri the national institutes of health genetic research. And we saw that there was going to be a sea change in terms of how people use this information. I think we were trying to figure out how to make a difference for folks. And ultimately what we decided to do, I think it it took us maybe a year to figure out what that product would look like, but the, the goal was to make genetics a part of primary care so we could better personalize medicine. And we, the first thing we did is we dropped the cost of sequencing. So, you know, for doing a general genetic test, it used to be about $5,000. We dropped it down to about $250 so that people could actually afford it out of pocket. And um, we started in women's health in particularly breast and ovarian cancer genetics, which were very well defined and described. And there was good treat there were good treatment options it, depending on what we found, which is not true in a bunch of other scenarios for genetics. So that was, that was where we started. And I think we, we made a really big impact. We had a lot of great, you know, stories that I was proud of, of women who had basically gotten denied testing by their insurance. And because we were able to drop the cost down to a price point that they could afford, they got the testing themselves, found out that they were at risk and, and were able to get the help they needed. So that was, that was really, I think my favorite takeaway from, from color. And I think that's what we were trying to do is, is make genetics accessible and make healthcare more personalized.
1: Well, right. And at the same time, you have the consumer genetics companies, 23 and Me, and Ancestry and those folks coming online.
0: Yeah, there was a whole
1: movement for sure. But you know, I'm curious about what you said about integrating this into primary care as baseline information. Do you have any sense of how accepted that has become
0: in the medical community? I think we're... It seems like a a good idea, right? Yeah. I think we're not quite there yet. I think there is an awareness that we can personalize with genetics, but until it becomes part of sort of the preventive guidelines or the USPSTF, we're not going to necessarily see it be you know listed as a part of primary care i think you know the the what where i think we're going to go is at starting at birth we're going to do a whole genome analysis of someone and you know r- right now most of the states do some kind of genetic testing just to make uh, you know for for the population at large that will just need to be expanded to a whole genome from that information certain things will be taken at birth and certain changes will be made at birth then i think we'll revisit your genome when you're about 18. not because your genome changes but because our understanding of it does and that has some impacts for early adult life and then i think around 35 to 38 it makes sense to do another personalization round um, and this is where we were focused really a little bit later in life the risks of cancer heart disease stuff like that that can be related to your genome. So I think that's the model that will develop. I think it's I think there's a general understanding that it's important, but it's definitely not fully accepted in, in primary care yet.
1: Yeah. Well, as you know, it takes the medical system, not to be overly critical, but it does take a long time. I think it's a thirteen year gap on average between right. introducing something <laughs> new and having it integrated into healthcare. So Yep. Uh, we'll get there eventually. So let's fast forward and and talk about your work now at Levels. Probably good to get sort of an overview of the company for folks listening. And then yeah. what are you trying to achieve? What problem are you trying to solve?
0: Yeah. So, so Levels, right now, I think Levels tells you how food impacts your health, right? It gives you a real-time feedback on the food that you're eating. And I would say soon it's going to broaden from there. The food that you're eating, the exercise that you're doing, the sleep that you're getting in order to make better health decisions i think you know there's we all have this idea of interoception or how you feel about your current situation like how how is your body doing it's more of a feeling and we're we're adding data to that to enable people to better understand that feeling and better understand what health decisions they should be making so as an example the one that we hear all the time and that both josh and sam the Co-founders' experience was: you have a bowl of oatmeal. Oatmeal is supposed to be very healthy, but you see your glucose skyrocket after you've eaten a a bowl of oatmeal, and then sometimes come crashing down afterward, and you feel tired and lethargic and things like that. And the I think levels is really predominantly helping people interpret that glucose signal that they that they get and really interpret how this information that's being captured is impacting them. That We don't make the continuous glucose monitors. Those are made by Dexcom, Abbott. They're, you know, two major manufacturers. What Levels really does is provides an interpretation layer on top of that glucose monitoring.
1: So this is, is really fascinating. People are getting at the consumer level all kinds of access to healthcare. There's heart monitoring and so forth and so on. What have you guys seen so far in terms of its impact on behavior? For example, if I know... What you just described about the oatmeal thing, maybe I never have oatmeal again. And I try to find some breakfast there where Mm -hmm. things are more level and spread out. So is that happening? Are people making lifestyle changes based on this?
0: Yes, they are. And I think, you know, we have a lot of amazing testimonials now from folks, anywhere from, you know, people who have just eliminated simple foods out of their diet to folks who have lost 60 or 80 pounds using the the device or using the, the app. So I, I think people are making those health habit changes. One of our core goals over the next year is to really build a, an application and a product that supports people in those behavior changes, because as we all know, they're di- they're difficult, right? Changing how you act is is tough. It takes work. It takes you know multiple tries, and so we're we're really engaged in trying to help people achieve that. I think the first step was just providing the data back to people in a way that they could understand it. The second step is really helping them interpret it. And then the third step is helping them take action on it. And uh, so what does that look like? How do you, how do you plan to do that? Well, I mean, you know, there are some very simple things that folks can do, um, for instance, food swaps. Right? If you see a um, if you see a ma- major glucose rise in response to something that you are eating, change it out for another food that that might not do that for you. And and there are ways to to test that. Another thing that that can be really helpful is take a walk after you eat. That can help you know level your your glucose out, and it's also good for you. We you know there there are definitely other health habits that will come in. And there are ways to engage people around that. But I think, oh, and there's actually one more simple thing that I'll throw out there. It, it not only matters what you eat, but in what order. So if you're going to have a croissant for breakfast, you might think about having some chia seeds or have some yogurt before you have that croissant that will actually change your, your glucose curve and change the way your body processes it. So there are some very basic things that people can do, and we are seeing them do it, and we're helping them do it more effectively. So what's the user experience like, the interface and so forth? So Levels is an app that you can download from the App Store or from Android. And basically what it does is it walks you through the interpretation of your glucose data. So it's really designed around health and wellness to help people understand their health trends, what things that they're doing that they might be able to improve. It gives you a a chart where you can see your glucose over the course of the day, as well as some sort of guidelines and recommendations around that chart. And the, the app is is changing very quickly. So uh, it's I think in order for this to be relevant, I'll probably keep it pretty high level uh, because it, <laughs> by the time you download the app, it might actually be a little different from what it's showing today
1: you know i would think from a physician's perspective this is a tremendous tool to help people be compliant with the treatment programs between visits i mean you know if you're diabetic you may not see your doctor for weeks and weeks at a time or months and months at a time
0: yeah so to be clear we're not focused on disease states We're we're trying to help people stay healthier but yeah i i think this fills a real gap that I've seen in the healthcare industry, which is that, you know, doctors get 10 or 15 minutes with a person. They can't stay with them every day to make sure that things are improving. And it's one of the reasons that doctors, I think, have so much difficulty helping patients with behavior change. It's because they can't engage with them frequently enough to make that possible. And I think, you know, the Levels app really does that, is, is it's it's constantly available for folks that are interested in improving their health. Sounds
1: very interesting. I will just say, if I ever had this, I would take it off before I eat. Pasta because that has to happen <laughs> regardless of the implications. That's red sauce is going to happen. You know? uh, yeah, totally understood. So, I, I do want to shift to the resilience piece of things. We have focused quite a bit on this show about the physician burnout issue and yeah. just general wellness, um, helping to support clinicians as they're out there. So, I had mentioned at the beginning that you, you have this uh, interesting kind of taking a broader look at what resilience means. Why don't you explain that?
0: yeah sure yeah i mean resilience traditionally was used to describe mostly psychological phenomena but i think that's where it's so powerful is you know people come up against these real challenges in life and you know resilience is kind of a measure of how you deal with it and how you bounce back how you recover and what i have found is that the this is a phenomenon that we actually use generally physiologically i mean your your brain just like everything else is a physiological organ so for example, I'll give some other examples in healthcare that measure resilience in an oral glucose tolerance test is to me is a measure of resilience. It's basically giving your body a huge slug of glucose and then seeing how it recovers and how it processes it. Does the glucose level in your bloodstream come down quickly enough um, to that you can be considered quote, normal versus diabetic? A cardiac stress test where you run on a treadmill for a little while and they hook an EKG up to you to see if there are any changes. That's another measure of resilience. So resilience is is actually, I think it's baked into the idea of the clinical process. It basically involves a stressor and an adaptation. And in the context, I, I think the reason that it's helpful to think about resilience now is that we are starting to do continuous monitoring. It will start with glucose and then you know lactate is starting to be monitored and ketones and you're going to start to see a number of other things that come online and what we do with that data is is important and and thinking about that data in the context of resilience I think tells us a lot about our health so as an example if I were to take a continuous glucose monitor and take that slug of glucose I can now watch that entire trace watch how quickly my glucose rises how quickly it comes back down, whether there's what we call a biphasic spike. So, and all of these things tell me about how well my body is responding to this this challenge. And, and I think that's where resilience is really helpful. What No matter what continuous stream of information you're monitoring, applying a stressor and then looking for the adaptation uh, tells you a lot about how healthy you are. And then what do you do with that information? Like give a sort of a practical scenario what we do with it i think will will come after we understand it better so we're we're just at the point that we're starting to understand it but you know we can already talk about it in the context of glucose monitoring so if you see your glucose rise very quickly in response to a bowl of oatmeal maybe you don't eat a bowl of oatmeal or maybe you eat the chia seeds ahead of time you can you can change your uh behavior to make those to to match your response better another example that people use a lot is heart rate variability this is something that's used by athletes in training and often as people start to train for marathons their heart rate variability will go up over time right that means your body is is able to more rapidly respond to different scenarios often it's also associated with being able to run for longer distances and so if you watch your average heart rate variability improve or go down that is a measure of your resilience that's a measure of how how well you're exercising i was talking with a um an ultramarathoner earlier this week who checks his heart rate and he says his average heart rate for a given output will actually go down over the weeks that he's training for a long distance run and again that's kind of a measure of your resilience so monitoring for these things and seeing how they change over time with respect to a specific stressor can tell you a lot about health and and people are I think you know, there are lots of examples of people using this in training. I think we'll also start using this in our daily lives in terms of how we change our diets, how we think about sleep, when we choose to exercise, et cetera.
1: Staying with resilience for a second and thinking about it in terms of how it applies in a clinical setting, hmm. what advice do you have generally for people who are trying to stay strong in the midst of, you know, very turbulent, challenging
0: circumstances.
1: Mm. I mean maybe you could even share what works for you.
0: <laughs> it's a it's a great question. I think you know you you need to be able to draw personal boundaries at times and you know you learn that over the years. When I started med school I was you know I was doing research at MIT while I was going to med school and I wasn't sleeping very much and I was going out to party with my friends and you know you you learn where your where your boundaries are. So I think you know setting boundaries is really important. I think that the next thing that I would say is doing something that gives back to you, the, you know, a lot of people that go into medicine have a very strong abstract idea of what they want to do. You know, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon or I'm going to be this that they decided 10 years prior. I have always found that the things that I do best at are also things that I like to do. And I have to try a few things before I know what that is and and I tend, if I try something and I like it, I do it more. Uh, and, and that has always served me really well. I th- I think, you know, we have these ideas of what we accomplish, and they sometimes don't match up to the actual experience. And when they don't, and they often don't in medicine, I think it's important to follow your gut, to follow the thing that you like. Makes sense. So,
1: Osmosis is, a, is an education company, as you know, and we love to ask our guests for an idea of something that they would like us to teach, uh, it could be exploding a myth. It could be just a gap in knowledge mm. related to what we've been talking about or totally unrelated. What, what would you say?
0: Well, I think, you know, and, and levels has really opened my eyes to this. I think the biggest thing is understanding insulin resistance. It's still not taught well in med school and it is probably one of the single biggest contributors to disease across the board. Um, you know, the Levels Health blog, I think, does a fantastic job of talking about a lot of issues related to insulin resistance and metabolic health. Um, uh, Casey Means and Rob Lustig and uh, Ben Bickman, a bunch of the advisors of the company, I think, also do a great job. So there are great resources there. But I don't think that information is making it into med schools yet. And I think it's really, I mean, it to me, this basic concept of you know eating too many carbs basically uh, refined carbs particularly and and you know constant insulin are fundamental to most of the what they originally called the diseases of the west or the the you know the sort of developed world diseases and you know whether whether it's diabetes or cardiovascular disease or alzheimers there's we're showing some links to cancer um, really i think understanding insulin resistance would be fantastic that'd be the one thing i would i'd love to see more of in, in med school
1: no, that's a good one. So you gave good advice already on the resilience side of things, but broadening it out now, what is your general career advice for people who are entering a career in medicine?
0: Oh, good, good question. I, I guess when when I when I look out there, or, or and when I did look out there at what I was going to do, I I would tend to look for gaps in in what was known. I mean, I I don't know that this is for everybody, but I think. The it, looking at where the field is going is is more important than I think landing the perfect job. And you know what what I've seen medicine change quite a bit actually in the last ten or twenty years, and it's been accelerated uh, by COVID. I think with the shortage of doctors, you're seeing states make it easier to practice across borders. Um, you're seeing you've seen a lot of changes in Medicare and remote treatment. I think there's some big changes. To the medical field that have been long overdue that are now coming, so I expect the profession to look fairly different actually in ten or twenty years from what it looks now, and and the I think, uh, you know, levels and a lot of the companies that I've been involved in are hopefully capitalizing on some of that change, because they're trying to create valuable products in spaces that aren't aren't well served in the um, in the medical community. So the the thing that I have always looked for and that may be helpful for folks who want particularly people who want to be involved in innovation is look for gaps right look for gaps in the way that carers provide and think about how you can create something valuable that's yeah maybe that that's the framework that
1: we no that's great advice some people say you know skate to where you think the puck's gonna go
0: great yes excellent Is another way to do it yeah exactly yeah
1: well listen this has been really really interesting and i'm so glad you had some time to spend with our audience to help them understand what new folks are working on their levels and where all of this is headed. Thanks very much.
0: Appreciate you having me on the podcast.
1: I'm Michael Caris. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together.
0: If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.